I remember as a child, a dear family member would come out for a Saturday night dinner a few times a year and she would live in the city and we were in the suburbs, uh, the western suburbs of Sydney. And during the day, the house would be cleaned and prepared and we'd all be busy doing our jobs in anticipation of uh, our guest's arrival. So mum would cook, uh, usually her world-famous apple pie. Uh, the lawns would be trimmed and mowed. We'd be up on the ladder getting all the leaves out of the roof gutters. we get ready. And just as the sun was going down, uh, I still remember us kids would sit on the front step there at Lucina Crescent uh, and we'd be waiting for her car to come around the corner. Uh, we would wait expectantly for this little red Datsun 120Y. Do you remember those? Ah, <laughs> uh, so many of you do. Uh, and when Kay arrived, well, she was welcomed with much excitement. Uh, and of course, no sooner did Kay walk in the door, well, we would eat, wouldn't we? And we'd have a great night together. Uh, fond memories. But the whole day was heading towards our guest, sharing at our table and being with us. Hooray! Which brings us to Luke chapter 12, verse 35. As you know, we've been working through a series, uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He has a lot to say in this section, for it, so it's good for us to be here. Uh, I hope you have your Bibles open. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. And Jesus here says, Be dressed. I think, Barry, did you say be blessed? Be dressed is, yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It'll be good for those servants who master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, tell you he will dress himself to serve We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. It's not hard to know what the big idea here is, is it? We need to be ready. Do you see the readiness there in verse 35? Two pictures immediately appear. Uh, the first one where it says, be dressed, ready for service. The old language is, do you know it? Gird your loins. Ah, and you've heard that expression before. Wait until I say it at the later services. They'll have no idea, which would be great fun. Uh, and keep your lamps burning. Uh, and we know, don't we, to gird one's loins means to put a belt on. Uh, the long robes in the Middle East flow all the way to the ground. They still do today. Normally without a belt. And the hot climate makes loose-fitting clothes more comfortable. But if you're going to do anything strenuous, like work, or travel, or run, or fight, then you would put the belt on and tuck the tunic in to keep the robe off the ground and out of the way. And that's what it means to gird one's loins. Um, it means to get ready. And in Australia, I guess the equivalent might be Get your boots on. Get your boots on. Get ready. 
Uh, Whatever the case, it points to being fully ready to go and to get cracking. And the lamp oil? Well, only one who lives without electricity knows how awkward it is to prepare and light a lamp after dark. Anyone who's been camping will know about that. But these guys have been ready to go the whole time. The disciples are told to be ready like these guys are ready. But also, uh, constantly ready also means being constantly alert, being switched on. And so they're waiting. As they wait, they're not merely waiting for you know, a bus to come or, or whatever, or something like that. This is more like an expectation we hold when we're maybe waiting for a movie to start or when we're waiting for a beloved dinner guest to arrive. And there's a sense of excitement and anticipation. And this is matched by the master, who doesn't simply return home from the wedding after it's done, but instead he quite literally... He quite literally breaks loose from the wedding, which means he slips out before it's finished. Uh, Why does he slip out when the party is, the wedding banquet of all things is still in full swing? Why? Well, verse 37 tells you in the second part. It says, truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. He's going to put his boots on. He's going to get himself ready and he's going to serve. Now, this should be very striking to us because we should know that the slave in this context holds the lowest status in the master's household. And here the master finishes early in order to serve them. I wonder if you can see the irony here. The servants are waiting expectantly to serve the master and then he answers and then he puts on his belt and now can you see how wide-eyed the servants are as the master now takes on the role of a slave can you imagine their minds thinking what's the boss doing is he going to scrub the floors now Uh, this is very strange this is really quite unthinkable that the master of the household would do that that the master would become a servant and serve Not other members of the household, but the slaves. And of course, if the master offers to serve the slaves, is there any room to protest? Not a chance. Not a chance. And so this really is a stunning reversal of roles. Notice the master completely turns upside down the master-slave relationship. The master shows us here that serving is not the same as servitude. His service is not servitude. His service is an act of love. And this must shape the way that we serve too. We come to church, we gather. And I hope we come to church and gather as an act of our service to God and our service to one another. I hope we don't come to church in order to be served because that's not what the master does here. 
And it's not what Jesus did either. In Mark's Gospel, it says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. And so the encouragement for us is to follow the pattern of the Master in this act of worship. We come to serve. Every Sunday and every other day we have an enormous opportunity to put our needs and our wants aside, even on a cold Sunday morning when it's much warmer in bed, and come to church and to serve one another just by being here. It's a great encouragement. I remember the board of directors at Perpetual Trustees held a dinner for some employees, which uh, included yours truly. It was a big deal. <gasps> the board of directors, scary stuff. They might point the finger and tell me to get out, maybe. Or, um, but, of course, it wasn't like that. Uh, we got to eat dinner with the bigwigs. Big deal. And I can tell you that after having a feed with the board of directors and being treated like, um, you know, a special employee, uh, you felt like the perpetual man, uh, ready to keep working hard, ready to give your employer uh, everything that you've got, to be loyal and to be committed and to, uh, to be devoted in your work. Well, about, for about a week you did. Um, but being served like this is even something altogether different to that. See, remember, put your feet in the shoes of the slave. How life-changing this is for the slave to be served this way. They already honour their master. We, we see that in their readiness. But how much more after this act by him? The slaves are treated like friends. How is their sense of worth after this? How loved would they feel and how devoted? Notice back in our passage, our NIV version says twice, it will be good for them. It'll be good for them to be ready. And the literal word here is blessed. Blessed are those servants whose master finds them ready. Verse 37. Or verse 38, blessed are those servants who master finds them ready. Those servants who have lamps lit, robes duly belted and are awake, eagerly expecting the arrival of their master, prepared to expectantly wait until all hours, they are blessed. Why are they blessed? They are filled with the blessing of God and they are a blessed presence in the household. Uh, they are a blessing. They're a blessing to each other and they're a blessing even to their master. Now, Jesus is telling this story to his disciples and there's a crowd around as well. Now, can you imagine the disciples hearing this story now? Now Jesus has just picked a fight with the Pharisees. It's a cracker of a fight. You should read it this afternoon. He's the worst dinner guest ever. Uh, but as we read the Gospels, don't we see the disciples as we wade through the book of Acts even? And don't we wonder, is there anything 
the disciples wouldn't do for their Lord, such as their love and devotion for him. And as we think about the disciples and their response in the book of Acts particularly, we also remember the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, in Jesus, in the incarnation, doesn't the master come to them, the disciples? Because Jesus is the master, right? We, we get that. I haven't said that yet. But he is clearly the master. And as the master comes, don't we remember his costly, self-giving love, which is being foreshadowed here? But we know this ultimate act of self-giving love was ultimately fulfilled there on the cross, where Jesus is the master who gives it all up and he lays it all down and he does it. Who does he do it for? He does it for slaves. He does it for people enslaved by sin. The master serves by dying in our place, where he gives and gives and gives, including his very own life, where he bears God's wrath and judgment, where he is forsaken so that we need never be. And if Jesus is the master here, then by extension that might mean that the disciples are the ready ones. I think that's okay. And as we flick through the Gospels, we see them wait for their Messiah. They are looking, they are hopeful, and they are expectant. And when they find him, they rejoice, don't they? I mean, they don't still quite get him, but nonetheless, they seek him and they find him. And when they find him, that changes everything, doesn't it? Doesn't Jesus, in his coming, in his life and death and resurrection, doesn't he turn their world upside down? And doesn't he also turn our world upside down? And isn't it also true that as we see the present context here, we also know that it's talking about the future. A future when Christ will return and when he will turn the world on its head again. When Jesus returns. When Jesus is coming back and he expects who to be ready? Us. He expects us to be ready and he expects us to be alert. I mean, every creed we express in church states the belief that Jesus is coming back. We'll do it in a minute. And so it begs the question, do we long to meet Jesus? Are we ready for his return? Are we like little kids that sit on the top step waiting for the Son of Man to come around the corner? Don't we believe this is ultimately a day about the day when Christ returns and when he comes he hosts us at the heavenly banquet where he will serve us and we will serve him and each other. And as we wait, and as we serve, do we believe that serving Jesus is indeed perfect freedom? Have you heard that before? Where we pray to our God whose service is perfect freedom? Who said that? Augustine said it. St. Augustine. That's three weeks in a row I've cited St. Augustine. Ten points for me. It's also in our prayer books somewhere, one of the collects, I think. But you can tell me where, you might know better. 
Serving Jesus is perfect freedom. Just like serving for these servants is perfect freedom. They love it. And of course, serving and freedom does sound like a contradiction, doesn't it? But the truth is, we all serve someone. Whether it's slavery to master sin or slavery to Christ. And after reading this passage, as short as it is, who would you like to serve? Absolutely. I want to serve this master. Serving Christ is what we are made for. And as we serve him, we serve one another until the day comes. How don't we serve? We don't serve as volunteers or by doing a favour. I don't think that's the idea. People who come and go. That's not the kind of service here. It's not service that's a matter of servitude and slave-like. We serve as family, as fellow brothers and sisters who love our Lord and who love each other. We serve as members of the body who love and worship our Master King Jesus Christ. And this is our act of worship. What did I say? This is our act of worship. Serving is our act of worship. Let me demonstrate it. Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. So just as Christ served by laying his life down as a sacrifice, just as he did that ultimate act of worship in obedience to the Father, in love of the Father, so too we follow in his footsteps. Christ's return is a prospect that must speak to our heart. It'd be crazy for us to talk and act and think like he's not coming back. It must shape our lives. It must determine and shape our priorities today because our whole life is one heading towards this day and we must be ready. Christ's return is a prospect that must compel us to share this good news with Jesus. Uh, Sorry, to share this good news with others. It must mean our feet are not too heavily anchored in our world and this life. It must mean that uh, we run to the cross every day where we find hope and assurance and forgiveness from the master who who serves. But it also means that there is absolutely better to come. There is better to come. Because when Christ returns, he'll do away with all sin and evil and he'll do away with the devil himself. And as he does that, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more sin and there will be no more death and there will be no more curse. And that's a prospect that should push us onto our knees in prayer. I mean, did you wake up today and say, Dear Lord, is today the day? 
For we must be ready because Christ is coming back and when he does, he will come at an hour we do not expect. Blessed are those servants who are ready. Amen.